Good evening, and welcome to Ideas. I'm Paul Kennedy with part two of David Cayley's Enlightened by Love, the Thought of Simone Weil. There is a reality outside the world, outside space and time, outside man's mental universe. Corresponding to this reality, at the center of the human heart, is the longing for an absolute good, a longing which is always there and is never appeased by any object in this world. This reality is the sole source of all beauty, all truth, all justice, all legitimacy, and all order. It is beyond the reach of any human faculty, but we have the power to turn our love and our attention towards it. It is through minds so turned that good comes into the world. Good, absolute good, has no place in the politics of modern societies. Goods are various. Politics is about establishing the conditions in which these goods can be pursued and enjoyed without interference. Simone Weil has a different view. She believes that political society derives its legitimacy and its order from its attunement to an overall good. Without such attunement, she claims, we have no way of knowing what is good about human beings or what is good for human beings. Simone Weil, the name is spelt W-E-I-L, was born in Paris in 1909 to a well-to-do family of secular Jews. As a young schoolteacher in the early 1930s, she threw herself with passionate intensity into left-wing politics. She went to Spain on the Republican side during the Spanish Civil War and wrote constantly, publishing in left-wing journals and literary reviews. Her life was one of great charity. She gave away her time, money, and attention without counting the cost, and of great austerity. In the later thirties, after years of intense suffering from violent headaches, she began to have mystical experiences. Christ, she says, took possession of me. She died in exile in London in 1943, aged only 34. The cause of her death was tuberculosis, compounded by the effects of her refusal to eat more than the rations her compatriots in France were receiving. Years of suffering and overwork had also undermined her health. She believed herself a failure. I'm convinced, she wrote to her parents in her last days, that there is within me a deposit of pure gold, but no one to receive it. Then, after the war, this deposit was discovered. French thinker Albert Camus, who oversaw the posthumous publication of many of her writings, called her a prophet. Many others called her a saint or religious genius. She's been finding new readers and friends ever since. Tonight's program is part two of a five-hour ideas series in which David Cayley explores the intellectual and spiritual legacy of Simone Weil. In his first broadcast, he recounted the story of her life. Tonight, he turns to her social and political thought. Philosophy, Simone Weil says, is exclusively an affair of action and practice. She does not mean by this that philosophy has no concern with ideals. She means that we can recognize what is good only by testing it. Her definition of freedom is similar. True liberty, she says, is defined by a relationship between thought and action. We are free, in other words, only when we are in a position to put our thoughts to the test of action. And the best society is the one that provides the widest scope for thoughtful action. This was the standard Simone Weil applied both to her society and to herself. It motivated her attempts to discover the possibilities and limits of political engagement. And it guided her analysis of modern civilization. A civilization which had become so complex, she thought, 
that individuals could no longer discern the effects of their own actions within it. The greatest good for human beings, according to Vey, is direct contact with reality, the chance to discover the world for oneself. Modern societies, she thought, deprive their citizens of this chance by absorbing them into an abstract and incomprehensible system. They envision society restored to a human scale, a scale at which people can once again find themselves in their surroundings. In what follows, I'll trace her steps along the path that led her to this vision. In December of 1934, Simone Ve took a job in a Paris factory which produced electrical equipment. Trained as a teacher of philosophy at the elite École Normale, she had been involved for a number of years in worker education and the politics of the left. Now she wanted to experience the reality of industrial labor herself. Ve had always questioned the privileges that went with her upper-middle-class upbringing and often tried to set them aside. But it was only when she entered the factory, she said, that she realized how much her very idea of herself had been formed by the autonomy that was taken away from her there. I came close to being broken. I got up in the mornings with anguish. I went to the factory with dread. I worked like a slave. Time was an intolerable burden. The feeling of self-respect which society had previously conferred on me was destroyed, and I was forced to recognize myself as one of those who do not count and never will. Simone Ve was not well suited to the rigors of work with stamping presses, industrial furnaces, and milling machines. She was clumsy, nearsighted, and suffered from crippling headaches. The work pushed her to the limit of her endurance. But in the end, what she experienced was what all her fellow workers experienced. Not to count, to be the passive object of another's will. She called this condition slavery and described it in a letter to a friend. There are two factors in this slavery. The necessity for speed and passive obedience to orders. In order to make the rate, that is, to achieve the expected output, one has to repeat movement after movement faster than one can think, so that not only reflection but even daydreaming is impossible. In front of his machine, the worker has to annihilate his soul, his thought, his feelings, and everything for eight hours a day. Then orders. From the time he clocks in to the time he clocks out, he may at any moment receive any order, and he must obey without a word. The order may be unpleasant, dangerous, or even impracticable. Two superiors may give contradictory orders. No matter. One submits in silence. No one ever explained to her what it is they were making, what the function of what they were making would be eventually, what the whole process was that they were engaged in, they simply took her to the, the place in the factory and said, you'll do this for the next eight hours and you'll be paid on the basis of how many bobbins or whatever it is you produce. And For her, that was the most awful form of alienation possible, that you did this as a slave to the system that, that was totally unintelligible and morally neutral for you. That really did crush her. That was Professor Larry Schmidt of the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Toronto. He thinks that what Simone Weil found most terrible about factory work, far worse than the physical duress, was the way in which it deprived workers of any say in either the organization or the outcome of their work, and therefore of any basis on which they could consent to it. This appalled her both because she saw work as an expression of the rational soul of each person and because she saw consent as something sacred. 
To be forced to labor without consent and without understanding was, therefore, to lose one's soul. This was how she put it in an essay written in the last year of her life. It is a sacrilege to degrade labor in exactly the same sense that it is sacrilege to trample upon the Eucharist. If the workers felt this, their resistance would have a very different force from the resistance that springs from the consideration of personal rights. It would not be just an economic demand, but an impulse from the depth of their being, fierce and desperate, like that of a young girl who is being forced into a brothel. And at the same time, it would be a cry of hope from the depth of their heart. Usually, when working conditions are discussed, the focus is on wages. For men burdened with a fatigue that makes any effort of attention painful, it is a relief to contemplate the unproblematic clarity of figures. And in this way, they forget that the subject of the bargain is nothing other than their soul. It is as if the devil were bargaining for the soul of some poor wretch, and someone, moved by pity, should step in and say to the devil, It is a shame for you to bid so low. The commodity is worth at least twice as much. Such is the sinister farce which has been played by the working class movement. Its trade unions, its political parties, its leftist intellectuals. The left, in Simone Weil's opinion, had addressed the question of work only superficially, as a question of wages or working conditions. But what is actually at stake, she says, is the soul. Work for Simone Weil is spiritual, not in any romantic sense. She recognizes that work can be harsh and tedious, but because it is the way in which reality enters the body, the way in which the inexorable passage of time and the resistance of things to our wills becomes undeniable. The mind, they says, dominates time, surveying past and future with a godlike freedom. Labor subjects us to time, subjects us to necessity, and makes us realize that we are finally things, material beings. When we recognize this condition, Faye says, we are close to salvation. But we must be able to recognize it and give our consent to it. Otherwise, it is mere slavery. And this is where Vey is most critical of the situation of the modern worker. Consent is impossible without understanding. And understanding is impossible in a situation which so far exceeds the human scale that the results of one's actions cannot even be foreseen. We are living in a world in which nothing is made to man's measure. There exists a monstrous discrepancy between man's body, man's mind, and the things which at the present time constitute the elements of human existence. Everything is disequilibrium. In appearance, nearly everything is carried out methodically. Science is king. Machinery invades bit by bit the entire field of labor. Statistics take on a growing importance. But in reality, methodical thought is progressively disappearing, owing to the fact that the mind finds less and less matter on which to bite. Science and mathematics form too vast and too complex a whole to be grasped by one mind. Consequently, new discoveries, as they go on accumulating, take on the appearance of enigmas. Technical progress and mass production reduce manual workers to a more and more passive role. Industry is too complex for any one man to be able to grasp it fully. Production, they concluded, had become a vast automatism, obeying its own laws. Blind forces, money, machinery, bureaucracy, had usurped the place that should belong to thought. Science, too complex and arcane to be understood, had become a new mystery religion. This made true freedom impossible, in Vey's view, because to be free, one has to be able, first of all, 
to know what one is doing, and then to be able to trace the consequences of what one has done. And what was already impossible in the 30s, says Larry Schmidt, is all the more so today. Freedom is being able to act in the world and understand what you're doing to achieve an end that you understand to be good. When you get to the levels of complexity of contemporary society, I would assume that the average business person who works in a stock market has no idea when he's bought or sold a particular stock whether he's acted for good in the world. The distance and the abstraction of the, the, the dollar transaction from what it eventually leads to in terms of what get, actually gets produced and the, the world of the people who produce it as well as the people who consume it is so distant that, that there couldn't be any sort of moral judgment made on it even if you want it. And, and that to her is, is evil. People can't... <laughs> that, it's not that what they're doing is evil in the sense of what they're achieving is evil. It's that you can't even know what you're doing because life becomes more and more abstract and unintelligible. The problem of excessive abstraction that Larry Schmidt identifies here was one that Simone Weil saw at work everywhere in her time. She saw it in industry, where the mysterious workings of science and the occult properties of markets dictated the fates of passive and uncomprehending workers. But she also saw it in the language of politics. During the early 1930s, Weil was intensely involved in the trade union movement, as part of a group associated with a journal called Proletarian Revolution. Her involvement led her to the conclusion that the discourses of both left and right were largely made up of empty abstractions. Words like revolution or capitalism that had been enlarged beyond their capacity to carry concrete meanings and whose only purpose was to command or to convey emotion. Such words, in Vey's opinion, gave thought no grip, and so left the field to the imagination. Without thought, force was unchallenged. They found evidence of the connection between force and meaningless words all around her in the 1930s, from the Stalinist terror in Russia to the rise of fascism. At several French trade union congresses where she spoke against the Soviet Union, she was herself shouted down and sometimes physically prevented from leafleting. And this violence, she thought, was actually made worse by the belief that modern civilization is rational and scientific. With no recognized outlet for the irrational, she said, irrationality had become total. The glossy surface of our civilization hides a real intellectual decadence. There is no area in our minds reserved for superstition, such as the Greeks had in their mythology. So superstition, under the cover of an abstract vocabulary, has revenged itself by invading the entire realm of thought. Our science is like a store filled with the most subtle intellectual devices for solving the most complex problems. And yet, we are almost incapable of applying the elementary principles of rational thought. In every sphere, we seem to have lost the very elements of intelligence, the ideas of limit, proportion, and interdependence. Our political universe is peopled exclusively by myths and monsters. This is illustrated by all the words of our political and social vocabulary. Nation, security, capitalism, communism, fascism, order, authority, property, democracy. Each of these words seems to represent for us an absolute reality. Our lives are lived in actual fact among changing realities. And yet we strive and sacrifice by reference to fixed and isolated abstractions. In this so-called age of technicians, the only battles we know how to fight are battles against windmills. Modern society is a paradox, Simone Weil thinks. It's ostensibly reasonable, but in practice highly superstitious. It believes itself scientific, but is actually governed by incomprehensible and increasingly uncontrollable forces. Her prescription 
was a return to earth, to meaningful words and intelligible, self-directed work. But she was in no sense a Luddite. She sometimes wrote quite glowingly of machinery and anticipated possible benefits from automation. Her issue was always the subjugation of people by alien powers, and she thought that this issue had to be addressed in the context of an industrial civilization. To escape back into primitive life is a lazy solution, she wrote. The original pact between mind and world must be rediscovered through the actual civilization in which we live. Simon Weil's first hope for a recovery of the pact between mind and world was invested in the political left. At university, one of her trademarks was the copy she carried of the communist newspaper L'Humanité, and according to her brother, she even flirted with joining the party at this time. Eventually, she identified herself with revolutionary syndicalism, which espoused trade union solidarity as the road to social change and opposed the communist idea that a political party should be the central instrument of the workers' movement. This required her to come to terms with Marxism, which was the prevailing ideology of the syndicalists as much as the communists, and she did. By 1934, when she went to work in the factory, still only 25, she had completed a manuscript published after her death under the title Oppression and Liberty, in which she carefully distinguished what she thought was valuable in Marxism from what she thought was wrong-headed. Marx's idea of progress, of a society evolving inevitably towards a higher and happier condition, she completely rejected. But she insisted that Marx's writing did contain one seminal and indispensable idea. Marx was the first to have the idea of taking society as the fundamental human fact and of studying therein, as the physicist does in matter, the relationships of force. Here we have an idea of genius in the full sense of the word. It is not a doctrine, but a method of investigation essential to every doctrine that does not want to risk crumbling to dust on contact with the truth. But having had this idea, Marx hastened to render it barren, by plastering over it the wretched cult of science of his time. The result was a system according to which the relationships of force that define the social structure entirely determine both man's destiny and his thoughts. Such a system is ruthless. Force counts for everything. No hope is left for justice. There is not even the hope of conceiving justice, since all that thought supposedly does is reflect the relationships of force. But Marx was a generous soul, and the sight of injustice made him suffer. This suffering was intense enough to have made it impossible for him to live had he not harbored the hope of an imminent and earthly reign of complete justice. In previous centuries, those who required such certitude rested it on God. Then 18th century philosophy and the wonders of technical science seemed to carry man to such heights that this habit was lost. But later on, when the radical inadequacy of everything human began to be felt once more, it became necessary to seek for a support. God was out of fashion, so matter was taken in his place. Man cannot bear for more than a moment to be alone in willing the good. He needs an all-powerful ally. If you do not believe in the remote, silent, secret omnipotence of spirit, there remains only the manifest omnipotence of matter. The term matter, as Vey uses it here, refers to social matter, to society considered as an ensemble of material forces. Marx, they thought, was right in supposing that society is a material thing, bound by inexorable laws, 
but wrong in supposing that this social matter contains within itself the germ of inevitable progress. Marx adopted the principle of progress, they claimed, because he could not face the world without such consolation. To her, this was merely wishful thinking, tricked out as a science of historical materialism. Marx's revolutionary materialism consists in positing, on the one hand, that force alone governs social relations, and on the other hand, that one day the weak, while remaining the weak, will nevertheless be the stronger. He believed in miracles without believing in the supernatural. The essential contradiction in the human condition is that man is subject to force and craves for justice. That is why we all believe that there is a unity between necessity and the good. Some believe that the thoughts of man concerning the good possess the highest degree of force here below. These are known as idealists. Others believe that force is of itself directed towards the good. These are idolaters. Marx was an idolater. The object of his idolatry was the society of the future. But since every idolater needs a present object, he transferred his idolatry to the part of society which he believed to be on the verge of bringing about the expected transformation, the proletariat. The distinction Vey draws here between necessity and the good has a central place in her thought. Necessity is the web of cause and effect that makes up the world. It exerts force. The good is our longing for justice, our sense of what ought to be. It exerts no force, but exists in the world only as a guiding light. To confuse these two, they thinks, is fatal. Idealists confuse them, she says, by claiming that the good is a force in the world. This is impossible, in her view, because the good would cease to be the good in becoming a force. Idolaters confuse necessity and the good by claiming that force is good, and this is where she criticizes Marx. In her view, Marx had taken the Judeo-Christian idea that history has a divinely ordained direction and transformed it into a limitless vista of material progress. She also believed, and this was a second major strand in her critique of Marxism, that Marx had been mistaken about the direction in which capitalism would evolve. Michael Ross is completing a doctoral thesis on Simone Weil at the Catholic University of America. She argues that Marx didn't quite grasp and Marxists haven't grasped at all the evolution of modern industrial society, capitalist or later on communist, especially with the emergence of bureaucracy, which she identifies as having its source in the separation between ownership and management. And that management has become a kind of separate elite. And so, she argues that bureaucracy has evolved in all organizations, that the end of bureaucracy is always oppressive, uh, always has oppressive consequences, and that it has permeated not just corporate productive enterprises, but governments and especially political parties and political movements. And so she's highly critical in, in a series of essays written between 1931 and 1933 of the syndicalists as well as the reform parties and the communist party and the, the mass movements of, the, uh, of workers for all having become bureaucratized in which leadership exercises authority and control over workers. And workers, even among syndicalists, are deprived of the opportunity to engage in the kind of free study and thought by which they can take that one truly great idea, understand their circumstances by observing the data of the world, and then deciding how to act. This one truly great idea is Marx's materialism his recognition that social forces are as regular and as inexorable as natural forces. Fay always honored this idea. But she came to think, as Michael Ross has just said, 
that oppression is a predicament that goes far beyond capitalism as such. Marx had imagined that ending capitalism would end oppression. The emergence of bureaucracy, professionalism, and managerialism proved that this was not so. So Vey undertook a more comprehensive analysis. She observed that oppression has survived all revolutions, and she pointed to the nature of power as one of the reasons. There are two struggles which every man of power has to wage, the first against those over whom he rules, the second against his rivals. And these two are inextricably bound up together and constantly rekindle each other. This most fatal of vicious circles drags the whole of society in the wake of its masters in a mad merry-go-round. Power, if one examines it closely, shows itself to be a fiction. There is, in its very essence, a fundamental contradiction that prevents it from ever existing in the true sense of the word. Those who are called the masters are ceaselessly compelled to reinforce their power for fear of seeing it snatched away from them and are forever seeking a dominion essentially impossible to attain. It would be otherwise if one could possess in oneself a force superior to that of many other men put together, but such is never the case. The instruments of power arms, gold, machines, magical or technical secrets, always exist independently of him who disposes of them and can be taken up by others. Consequently, all power is unstable. There never is power, but only a race for power. And there is no term, no limit, no proportion set to the efforts that it exacts. Agamemnon, sacrificing his daughter, lives again in the capitalists who, to maintain their privileges, acquiesce lightheartedly in wars that may rob them of their sons. Agamemnon was a legendary Greek king whose story is told in the Iliad and in the tragedies of Aeschylus. A Trojan named Paris had seduced and carried off the beautiful Helen, wife to Agamemnon's brother Menelaus. Agamemnon assembled a Greek fleet to sail to Troy and recover her, but the fleet was becalmed by Artemis, a hostile goddess. To placate her and reach Troy, Agamemnon sacrificed his daughter Iphigenia. The Greeks then fought at Troy for ten years, ostensibly over Helen. The whole story for Vey was a parable of the way force dominates those who think they can control and use it for their own purpose. She took it up in an essay written in 1937, which she called, Let Us Not Restart the Trojan War. The Greeks and Trojans massacred one another for ten years on account of Helen. Not one of them except the dilettante warrior Paris cared two straws about her. All of them agreed in wishing she had never been born. The person of Helen was so obviously out of scale with this gigantic struggle that in the eyes of all she was no more than the symbol of what was really at stake. But the real issue was never defined by anyone, nor could it be, because it did not exist. For the same reason, it could not be calculated. Its importance was simply imagined as corresponding to the deaths incurred and the further massacres expected and this implied an importance beyond all reckoning. No one felt the cost was too great, because they were all in pursuit of a literal non-entity whose only value was in the price paid for it. Most of the conflicts that are taking place today have even less reality than the war between the Greeks and the Trojans. At the heart of the Trojan War, there was at least a woman, and what is more, a woman of perfect beauty. For our contemporaries, the role of Helen is played by words with capital letters. If we grasp one of these words, all swollen with blood and tears, and squeeze it, we find it is empty. It is the nature of power, according to Vey, that makes us bleed and cry for empty words. 
power does not in itself exist. It is no more than an endless pursuit of something that resides entirely in the opinion of others. And yet it is at the same time necessary, Fay recognizes, because no one knows how to keep order without the appearance of power. Power, therefore, cannot be overcome, but only limited by those who understand its nature. Fay is finally a realist, says Michael Ross, who always understood that some must rule, some obey. Ross uses the terms superordination for rule and subordination for obedience. What she wanted, he says, was that power be exercised reasonably and truthfully. I think her view is, is that subordination and superordination are the necessary elements of all human organization. They go with order no matter where it's found. Marx is wrong in supposing, therefore, that when you eliminate private property, you're not going to have subordination and superordination. The experience of the Soviet Union showed her as early as 1931 and 1932 that that was clearly not the case. And technological efficiency of late capitalism also wasn't liberating men. Subordination and superordination were, if anything, more intense in these two experiences of communism and advanced capitalism. I think what she thought was, was that those were inherent realities of order, not to be rejected. Individuals are going to live under circumstances of subordination and superordination, where some have or exercise power over others. The issue is how to make that non-oppressive. And I think she thought that every kind of order is necessarily and inherently subjugating and therefore oppressive unless individuals are allowed to engage in the kind of free discussion and free deliberation and free rational thought. Bay is very much a rationalist. She very much thinks that the one most distinctive and proper characteristic of the human being is rationality. And so I don't think the issue is, for Vey, uh, an opposition to power as such. It's the way power has always been exercised. And what she's looking for is a way for power to be exercised in a non-oppressive manner. Uh, she does not polarize power with justice, power with uh, oppression, power against the good. Force, maybe, but not power. Vey's view on the overcoming of oppression by a politics of truthfulness, thoughtfulness, and participation had little resonance during the 1930s when huge, highly polarized forces were at play and words with capital letters in the ascendancy. But later, she got much more of a hearing. She was a recognized ancestor of the so-called New Left of the 60s. It emphasized participatory politics self-directed work, and decentralization of power, all crucial themes in Vey's political thought. She was echoed again in the 1970s and 80s in Central and Eastern Europe by the Polish Workers' Defense Committee, which made openness, truthfulness, autonomy of action, and trust its watchwords, and by Václav Havel, who proposed living in truth as a mode of political existence. And finally, Vey anticipates the many contemporary thinkers who have tried to frame a political theory which emphasizes proportion, limitation, and balance. In everything related to social order, force is to be found. It is balance alone which can abolish force. If one knows in what respect society is unbalanced, one must do what one can to add weight to the lighter of the two scales. Although the weight is bound to be evil, by using it with the intention of re-establishing the balance, it may be one thereby avoids any personal degradation. But one must first of all have clearly recognized where the balance lies and be ever ready to change sides, like justice, 
that fugitive from the camp of the victors. Simone Weil's political philosophy pits the imaginary against the real. The imaginary, for her, is whatever is unlimited. Power, progress, words with capital letters. Imagination, she says, is always the fabric of social life and the dynamic of history. The real is the principle of limitation. It is what we learn, for example, through work, in which we discover the resistance of the world to our wills. It is what finally makes us aware of the nature of the world in which we live. In her view, the opposition between reality and imagination is played out politically as a tension between the individual and the collective. The collective is the imaginary element. Only the individual has access to reality. A good society would foster this access, she thought. But what she saw happening in her time was just the opposite. Science had become obscure, language bloated, and work alienated. Institutions had grown ever larger and more centralized, culminating in the modern state, which had gradually displaced all other claims on people's loyalty and obedience. Its epitome could be seen, she believed, in Hitler's Germany. How then was the human scale to be restored? Vey got a chance to try and answer this question in the last year of her life. It was 1943, the middle of the war, and she was working for the Free French, Charles de Gaulle's French government in exile in London. There she was asked to contribute her ideas on the reconstitution of France after the war. Most of the people around her imagined France resurrected to its former glory. They thought that this was just a continuation of the power worship that had led to war in the first place. A France that revered Napoleon, she said, was no better than Germany enthralled to Hitler. She thought the collapse of France called for a much deeper rethinking, and that was what she tried to do in the long essay that was published after her death as the need for roots. In this essay, Vey argues that a society can only be good when it recognizes that the source of its goodness lies beyond the reach of any human institution. This was how she expressed the idea in a paper written at the same time and in the same vein as The Need for Roots. There is a reality outside the world, outside space and time, outside man's mental universe. Corresponding to this reality, at the center of the human heart, is the longing for an absolute good, a longing which is always there and is never appeased by any object in this world. This reality is the sole source of all beauty, all truth, all justice, all legitimacy, and all order. It is beyond the reach of any human faculty, but we have the power to turn our love and our attention towards it. It is through minds so turned that good comes into the world. Good, for Vey, is what we know of God. It enters the world only through love manifest as attention. The ability to pay attention, Vey thinks, develops only in a society which addresses what she calls the needs of the soul. In The Need for Roots, she mentions a variety of such needs, ranging from order, obedience, and truth on the one hand, to equality and freedom of opinion on the other. Society exists, she says, to nourish these needs. Relations between the collectivity and the person should be arranged with the sole purpose of removing whatever is detrimental to the growth and mysterious germination of the impersonal element in the soul. This means, on the one hand, that for every person there should be enough room, 
enough freedom to plan the use of one's time, the opportunity to reach ever higher levels of attention, some solitude, some silence. At the same time, the person needs warmth, lest it be driven by distress to submerge itself in the collective. If this is the good, then modern societies, even democratic ones, seem to go about as far as it is possible to go in the direction of evil. In particular, a modern factory reaches almost the limit of horror. Everybody in it is constantly harassed and kept on edge by the interference of extraneous wills, while the soul is left in cold and desolate misery. What man needs is silence and warmth. What he is given is an icy pandemonium. Social conditions should be so arranged, Faye says, as to foster what she calls the impersonal element in the soul. What she means by the impersonal is what we have in common as human beings. Our attributes as persons are only accidents of fortune. One is beautiful, another is plain, one rich, another poor, and such chances are always unequally distributed. What we have in common, what makes us equal, is that we are all the same vis-a-vis -vis what she calls the reality outside the world, which is God or the good. This common link to an eternal and unchanging good is the source of our dignity, our equality, and our obligations one to the other. The modern view has been just the opposite. It has emphasized personality, or identity as we might say today. But the glorification of personality, Faye says, can only lead to inequality. The full expression of personality depends upon its being inflated by social prestige. It is a social privilege. But to the dimmed understanding of our age, there seems nothing odd in claiming an equal share of privilege for everybody, an equal share in things whose essence is privilege. The claim is both absurd and base. Absurd because privilege is by definition inequality, and base because it is not worth claiming. Unhappily, those who monopolize public discussion are themselves privileged. So they are not the ones to say that privilege is unworthy to be desired. They don't think so. And in any case, it would be indecent for them to say it. Many indispensable truths go unspoken for reasons of this kind. Those who could utter them cannot formulate them. And those who could formulate them cannot utter them. If politics were taken seriously, finding a remedy for this would be one of its more urgent problems. The privileged, according to Vey, have the public ear, but cannot admit their privileges are merely their good luck. The less fortunate know the truth, but have no voice. So the absurd claim of privileges for all, she says, dominates political discussion. The way out of this dilemma, says Vey, is to recognize that our roots are in what she calls the supernatural, by which she means the reality that transcends space and time. Only heaven, she says, can give us back the earth. Supernatural good is not a supplement to natural good. It would be nice if this were true, but it is not. In all the crucial problems of human existence, the only choice is between supernatural good on the one hand and evil on the other. To put into the mouth of the afflicted words from the vocabulary of middle values, such as democracy, rights, personality, is to offer them something which can bring them no good and will inevitably do them much harm. These notions do not dwell in heaven, they hang in the middle air, and for this reason they cannot root themselves in earth. It is the light falling continually from heaven which alone gives a tree the energy to send powerful roots deep into the earth. 
the tree is really rooted in the sky. It is only what comes from heaven that can make a real impress on the earth. Modern societies can regrow their roots, Ve says, only insofar as they reorient themselves towards an eternal and unchanging good. This is a view that makes modern liberals nervous. They claim, with considerable evidence, that talk of the good leads sooner or later to an attempt to enforce this good on everyone. Their solution is to leave everyone to pursue their own good. But such freedom often ends in a different kind of tyranny, in which the state, the market, or the crowd becomes the final good. Vey is interesting because she combines her devotion to the good with a profound commitment to freedom from oppression. This opens a new path in which freedom and the good are not thought of as opponents, but put into relationship. To understand this path, we will have to go deeper into Vey's understanding of the good. And that is where I will resume in the next program of this series. There are certain words which possess in themselves when properly used, a virtue which illumines and lifts up towards the good. These are the words which refer to an absolute perfection which we cannot conceive. Since the proper use of these words involves not making them fit any conception, it is in the words themselves as words that the power to enlighten and draw upward resides. What they express is beyond our conception. God and truth are such words, also justice, love, and good. It is dangerous to use words of this kind. They are like a kind of ordeal. On Ideas, you've listened to part two of Enlightened by Love, The Thought of Simon Vey. The series continues tomorrow night with a program on Simon Vey's religious thought. Tonight's program was written, presented, and produced by David Cayley, with the assistance of Linda Shorten and Dave Field. Readings from Simon Vey's writings were by Kate Cayley. The incidental music was taken from the piano works of Eric Satie. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Paul Kennedy. <laughs>